Welcome, listeners, to a special episode of Girls That Create. Today, we are joining the global movement in celebrating the Day of the Girl. Recognized by the United Nations, this day is about empowering girls, highlighting their rights, and shedding light on their unique challenges. I'm the show's producer, Dori DiCarlo, and I'm thrilled to have you here with us. Girls That Create is a podcast dedicated to helping parents and caregivers inspire and uplift creative girls. Host Erin Prather-Stafford and I believe in the power of creativity, innovation, and self-expression. I invite you to explore our past Girls That Create podcast episodes. Each has inspiring stories, insightful interviews, and practical tips to help girls unleash their creativity and pursue their passions. Let's envision a world where every girl can lead, thrive, and contribute. Together, we can make a difference. So join us in celebrating the Day of the Girl, and let's empower the next generation of female creators. Hi, everyone. This is Erin Prather-Stafford with the Girls That Create podcast on Word of Mom Radio. Today's guest has a LinkedIn newsletter I enjoy reading for its honesty and commitment to making the business world better. Madeline Reeves is the founder and CEO of Fearless Foundry, a creative consulting firm that specializes in helping ambitious innovators with their branding, marketing, and business development. She has previously worked as a business development leader for technology companies, ranging from small startups to large publicly traded companies. Madeline launched Fearless Foundry to help companies boost their branding and internal strategies to build better businesses and work with clients they love. In addition to her CEO role, Madeline hosts the Finding Fearless podcast. Welcome to the Girls That Create podcast, Madeline Reeves. Thank you for having me. It's so good to be with you, Erin. Tell me about your business, Fearless Foundry, and where did that name come from? So this business has been many years in the making. It started out in 2017 on paper. I was working full-time in corporate. I was a global business development director for a technology company, and I had a decades-long career that was in that space, really working at this intersection of technology and go-to-market strategy and finance. And at the same time, I was getting a little frustrated in my role in corporate. I was often a leader of like new emerging markets, new teams, new brand moments. And I just felt like I didn't have enough space to let my ideas play out. And so I also around the same time had a lot of friends who were starting companies and they were approaching me and saying like, hey, can you can you help me with this? They sort of knew what I did, but mostly they knew that I was good at marketing. And so they would come to me and say like, I'm trying to build a website. Do you know what Squarespace is? You know, I'm trying to set up social media. Do you know how to build an Instagram profile? Um, do you know how to set up MailChimp and connect it to my Wix website? Like these baseline questions that I had been DIYing stuff like this for years. And so I started sitting down with friends and folks and just helping them through those sort of things. And each project led to another project, which led to a bigger consulting project. And basically after two years of side hustling, I just kept thinking about, you know, what would it be like to do this full time? I was really enjoying the side work more than I was my job at that point. And I had a feeling I might be able to make more money, actually, if I was able to step out and start something on my own. So I sort of did this like back of the napkin thing. And I I still have the notebook somewhere of if I had this many clients at this much a month, you know, and of course it was an under evaluation because at the time I wasn't thinking about taxes. I wasn't thinking about expenses. Like I didn't, you know, know what I didn't know. Eventually I got to a point where I was like, I think I can make something out of this. And so I had about $20,000 saved at that point in time, which was less than three months of runway. I was the primary breadwinner in my household and I had a six figure plus salary. And so I made a go of it at the start of 2019 and nothing will light a fire underneath you like needing to feed your family. And I had, you know, a one-year-old baby and I had a brand new house we had just bought. 
So I got moving and I got creating revenue as fast as I could. And it really, really evolved from there. When I launched the business, it was actually called Fearless in Training. And a fun fact that most people don't know is I actually had two business models in mind. One was this kind of like creative consulting business. And the other business was fitness related. I'm a certified yoga instructor. I have a big passion for personal wellness and mental health and really just helping women own their power through their bodies. And so I called the business Fearless in Training because I wasn't sure which path I was going to go. And Fearless in Training, the acronym was FIT. And so I was like, okay, if this business goes in a fitness direction, this will work. But also I was doing a lot of teaching and training. And so I really loved that when I started out. But as the business went on and as I really started to establish myself and grow into different avenues and, and industries, I realized I needed something that really grounded and solidified. I was doing so much more than training and having that kind of brand kind of was a misnomer. People thought that was all I did. And so I rebranded as Fearless Foundry in 20. It's all a blur, 2021, 2020, somewhere in there. I think it was 2020. And from there, it was really a spark that just like stuck with me. I, I don't know how to explain this to people, but I branding for me is, is a deeply spiritual process. And I really, it comes from a really intuitive place. And I was thinking about this phrase that came to me one day, which was that we forge founders on the path to entrepreneurial equity. And then this notion of forging founders and supporting them and, you know, holding space for them and really walking with them through this fire, which is building a company, it stuck with me. And I was like, forge, you know, what are words that come with that? And then it was this notion of a foundry, like, this is where you go. This is where we turn metal into gold. We turn, you know, businesses into profit. We turn founders into leaders. And so I really liked that notion of the foundry. And so that kind of came together and it stuck and we launched it to the market in 2020. I love that story. One thing I really appreciate about your business is a focus on relationship building. And can you kind of share why you believe nurturing relationships contributes to the success of businesses? I don't think enough people give it the focus it should, it deserves. Yeah, I feel so lucky to have learned this early on in my career because every single time I have either moved companies or created a company, I have this incredible roster of people who come with me. And it is because I really, really focus on relationships. Before I had become this big leader in the world of tech, I was working in business development. And I my first job out of college was as an inside sales rep working in a basement and you know, smiling and dialing 75 calls a day. I, at the time, was a single mom. I needed to make ends meet. And what I realized was the more I could connect with people, the more likely it was for them to continue the conversation. And that was how I was measured. That's how my quota was met, was how many conversations turned into sales conversations, basically. And I grew really quickly in that role because I was hungry for the money, quite frankly. But I also realized I was really good at talking to people and that where most of the reps in our space went wrong is they would only talk about the company. They would only talk about themselves. They would only talk about the product. They didn't really seem to care about the people. And I, I'm genuinely interested in people. By schooling, I'm a cultural anthropologist and I just love people. I'm fascinated by them. And so I realized that, you know, by taking the time to talk to people about what really mattered to them, I could learn a lot that could make me better at sales, but I could also learn, you know, now today in my role as a leader of a company, like what is the market need? What do my clients need? What's changing in the space? For example, a big shift that I see and feel based off of a lot of market research I did this past year was, you know, a year ago, it was a little bit of a tough time to be a consultant. There weren't a lot of folks hiring us. But in the last six months, I've seen a huge dramatic shift because there's a lot of people who haven't been able to fill roles inside their company or don't necessarily want to hire somebody full time. And so they're actually a lot more appetite right now for pulling in expert consultants for like, you know, short term projects or, you know, having you on retainer for an hourly based agreement or something like that. And so I get those pulse points by talking to people. And so my thing that I am most proud of today is the way that my business is built around those relationships. Just last Friday, I actually posted a video about this on LinkedIn this morning. Just last Friday, I was speaking at a company retreat for one of my first clients back when I was fearless in training. So that was five years ago. It was a big consulting project I did with them. And now the brand has multiple millions in revenue. They've got 35 advisors on their team. Like it's amazing to watch how they've grown. But that client was actually one of my first business development relationships 
at my first tech company job. So I can look at that relationship I've built with her. This is Kristen Keats of Breakaway Advisors. And Kristen and I have now have a relationship that spans more than 10 years. And we've changed companies. We've changed, I've changed industries, but we still do work together because we have so much respect and admiration for each other. So I really love full circle moments like that. And it kind of leads to my next question because it's kind of about reflection where you get to kind of look back and see yeah. the dots connect. And there are though potential consequences when we're always prioritizing productivity, deadlines, efficiency, and we kind of forget to just pause mm -hmm. and let ourselves think about what are we doing? Almost laughing. What are we doing? And what are we yeah. doing it for? I would love to hear your yeah. thoughts on that because that's something I noticed you kind of focus on in your LinkedIn newsletter. Yeah, I feel like I'm turning a really big corner this year. And I think it's something about passing the milestone of more than five years in business. And clearly I have a whole lifetime ahead of me, but I am one of those few people who can now say, I've been doing this for more than a decade. And, and I can only imagine when it's two and three, you know, I'll be even more reflective, but I have been really reflective this past year. And part of it is in a desire to slow myself down. I, you know, have been very candid in my content more recently about the burnout I experienced over the past couple of years. And that was very much a product of the industries I came out of. I thought I was building my business of a place of really clear intention, but I had this number in my mind of I need to grow at the rate of 300% year over year forever because I came out of the world of tech and tech comes out of the world of fundraising. And if you want to take a startup on the rocket ship to the moon, that's your growth trajectory. And I had done it. I had done it for more than five years at every single tech company I did. My performance numbers were always 300% of quota or 300% year-over-year -year growth. And I did it in my business too. And it almost killed me. I was incredibly depressed. My team was kind of a mess. I was a mess personally. My marriage was falling apart. I was working nonstop. And so the last two years have really been about recovering from that and reflecting on that and saying, whoa, as much as I thought I was coming from a new perspective, I wasn't. And in fact, I fell victim to these really toxic things that I think are so around female founders. I think that there is such a hustle culture around us. I'm working on a piece that's going to go out tomorrow. It's called hustle culture is scarcity with better branding. And, and it's just, this is this BS that was packaged in pink and sold to us as female founders. If, if you just were to hustle harder, you could have it all and, you know, make a million dollars and yada, yada, yada. But what I found as I do that reflection, it's like, we have to unpack these core questions of not only like, why am I doing what I'm doing, but what do I really want out of this? And, you know, maybe the 300% year over year model makes sense if I was looking to sell my company, but I'm not anytime soon. I'm looking to be as profitable as possible. I'm looking to be able to ha take half of the next month off. I'm looking to be able to pick up my kids every day that I want to or go to their sports practices and not be on my email all the time. And so there's a lot that I'm still working on in this area. I, I don't think I'll ever 100% get there. I'm an Enneagram 3. And so this like ambition versus reflection thing is a really hard thing for me. But that's part of the reason I talk about it so often publicly is because it holds me accountable. And then it's really affirming to see the ways that other people are showing up in the comments and saying, I'm working on this too. You know, I'm struggling with this too, because I think entrepreneurs, we are ambitious, which makes us able to go out and do this thing that is really hard and not everybody has the chops to do. But also we need to be able to dial it back sometimes and, you know, just lay down and watch Netflix when we need to. <laughs> I think as women, we, there's just so much messaging. I think about that external voice and how it can almost shut out your internal voice. Yeah. And you're listening to everyone, maybe a partner, your kids, all the things that are almost demanded of you, you know, what's going on at school. And of course, all the professional, what's, you know, coming, like, what is the deadline? What do you need to have turned in at this exact time? All these external forces and we forget that that internal force is inside it's screaming to be heard. Yeah, I relate to that so much. So like one of my biggest personal things that I'm working on is like, how am I the top of my to-do list? Because every single day, whether it's when I open my inbox or, you know, I've got Command Central over here and she's got her to-do list. I live off of that stuff. But if I'm not in there, I'm never going to be in there, right? And so one of the things that I've been really working on this year is 
prioritizing myself at the very start of my day. And I'm not going to be one of those people who preaches and is like, and you need to wake up at 5 a.m. and you need to do this. But I am one of those people who does that. And it's not for everybody. It doesn't have to be first thing in the morning. For me, that's when it works for me because both the caliber I work at and the level at which I show up, particularly online and, and in presentation settings, I'm an introvert who extroverts like way too much. And so like just to maintain my energy, I have to do something at the start of my day for myself. And so I have this two hour ritual every morning and it starts with the way that I do my teeth and my face and wash everything when I wake up. And then it, you know, is my yoga or Pilates and then it is meditation and journaling. And, you know, I know when people hear this on a podcast, they're like, oh my God, this is another woman who says her life is successful because she starts at 5 a.m. That's really annoying and I'm sorry, but also it's because I have a child that wakes up at 6.30. And so if I don't get going before he does, everything about my day is controlled by somebody else's to-do list. It's about what my kid wants for breakfast. It's about getting out the door. It's about the client that's texting me at 7 a.m. because they're on the East Coast and they forgot that I'm on the West Coast. If I don't do that, my day kind of gets away from me as opposed to feeling like, okay, before everything else began, I did me, I took care of me. And that has been a big game changer for me. Now I hope to get to a state where my kids are out of the house and that can start more at 8 a.m. or something more sane. But until my kids are a little older, you know, that's what works for me. Yeah, it's about finding that personal space. And it could be, depending, we're all different. We all have different schedules. We all have different pulls. It could be taking a walk during lunch that yeah. you just walk off and you get outside and you walk, you know, and that's your your time. Or maybe you are, can you can carve out that little time in the evening. But everyone's yeah. different. We all have to find out what works for ourselves. And I think that's another way women sometimes self-sabotage is we look at what everyone else is doing and think, well, we should just copy that versus yeah. listening to what do we actually need and what do we yeah. want to do? And just understanding our circumstances are all different. Yes, absolutely. You know, we, you know, we talk a lot about creativity and one of the things I think creatives find really challenging is this feeling, always having to put their work out there, always having to not only create the work, but also market the work. And that's a constant, I mean, and you can never, there's not enough hours in the day to achieve everything you want to, but can you kind of like go in about why creatives need to think about having that time for reflection to let their creativity thrive? Because if you keep worrying about trying to market and push it out yourself all the time, you're just, again, as you mentioned, burn out. Yeah. This question, it hits me in my soul because, because it, this is the battle of my life, which is that one, I'm an Enneagram three, so I'm a, I'm an achiever. And two, fortunately or unfortunately, as a child, the way that I was brought up was, you know, the way to receive affirmation was, was through performance. And when I was little, that was dancing around the living room with my home production of Swan Lake, you know, and as I got older, that was through publishing my writing or through, you know, I danced semi-professionally for a number of years. And so I've always kind of been a performer and, um, you know, the hard hitting questions that my therapist will ask me is like, well, what would you do if nobody would watch? My favorite was, you know, I, like I said, I'm a yoga instructor and she was like, well, why don't you just like go to a class? Why don't you? stop teaching them and just like go to a class. And I was like, oh, this is really hard. I like being in performance mode because I love the feedback. Mm -hmm. I love the affirmation of it. I love engaging with the audience, whether that's one person or 10 people. Like I love that experience. And also it can be really, really lonely because regardless of how you're hitting publish or per performing, there's always a moment at the end of the day where the lights go off in the proverbial theater and you're standing on stage and no one else has laughed. And so I think that regardless of the way you create, if you dance, if you sing, if you write, if you draw, if you design, whatever you do, you have to have enough space to have quiet time with yourself and realize that the work is more meaningful than whatever anybody's going to ever have to say about it. And especially as your work gets bigger, you know, you are only going to be more susceptible to more criticism. So, you know, as my platform has grown over time, I'm, I'm mostly get good feedback, but I definitely put out feminist content that gets a certain level of trolling and I can get a hundred positive comments, but that one mean one will stick in my brain a little bit. And so you really have to ground in yourself. And you also have to do this ritual, which I really talk a lot about with my, my creative community, which is this notion of creative input. So if you are, are somebody who creates not just for the sake of creating, but creates for a living like I do, 
you have to have work that is messy and crappy and doesn't get shown to anybody. You have to have writing that's for yourself. Writing is my, one of my primary practices. You have to have art that isn't for display. And you have to take time to get stuff that goes in that isn't just like the conversation you had with the client, but instead is this magical mix of ingredients that I can't explain to anybody who's not a creative, but it's for me, it's, you know, it's walks with my dog. It is going to um, art shows. Like I just went to the Chicago um, Art Institute and and just walking through the galleries there, you know, that supercharged my creative spirit in a way that I can't explain. It's being in nature. It's, you know, playing with my kids. There's There's so many different ways that I get what I call creative input, listening to music. But you have to have space for that because if you're going to output, like you can't pour from an empty cup. And so whatever that thing is that lights your creative fire, you have to make sure you have just as much time for the input as you're putting out into the world. I think that's important too with kids because when one of the, as a parent, I push back on is trying to make sure I don't overschedule my kiddos because yeah. I want to make sure that they do have, we do have that time to have to see things, to experience things, to just revel in things, because it's so easy to look up one day and be like, oh my gosh, we're not even like breathing here. We're just trying to go through all the mm. rhythms of a day. And it's like also in the calendar is completely booked. Yeah. I keep trying to make space. It's a non constant battle though. Yeah. And it is, I think it's a uniquely American thing as well. One of the things I've been really fortunate in my career that I never really envisioned, but feel so blessed to be able to do is I do a lot of travel and I did a lot of international travel prior to the pandemic. And it was such an important window for me to look at, like, for example, Australian culture or Korean culture or Chinese culture, or the UK culture, and see how differently we approach work and time. And so I always kind of reckon with myself and, and, you know, part of it is a challenge of, you know, okay, I still operate primarily in the American market. I've got clients in other places, but mostly my clients are, we're kind of on the same hamster wheel, but I'm also getting to this point in my work where, and my life where I can kind of sit, push back a little bit because I'm, I'm known well enough for what that I, I do. And I also work with people who value those same things. And so for example, I was in a beautiful email exchange this week with a client and, you know, she, she wrote me on Monday knowing we were supposed to have a meeting and she said, you know, I really am just desperate for about three days off. I need some space and time to think. It's not the work we're doing. It's the other work and I just need some space and I've got family coming to town and it's really important for me to be recharged and present for that. And, and I just, it's such a gift to have clients who one, feel like they can be vulnerable and honest in that way with you. But then I know in that same exchange, if I was to write her and be, you know, a couple of days behind on our deadline, because I need more space for my brain to to process it in the right way. She's going to receive that and say, look, I just want the work to be great. You know, I don't, I'm not concerned about an extra day or two. Can you share a specific moment when you realized what you were doing, when you were doing things in your business, you were just doing them simply because that's how it's always been done. Like you kind of woke up and were like, wow, I'm just doing the motions because I think of entrepreneurs were fed so much information to say, well, you got to do your newsletter. You got to do your social. You got to have schedules. Mm -hmm. You got to do these things. And how did you approach reevaluating and finding true alignment and suddenly thinking, whoa, this is actually not working for the business? Mm. Gosh, there's so many, so many, so many examples. So it's it's hard to pick just one, but I've got two that immediately sprung to mind. And they're both kind of newer things that I'm shifting. So so bear with me as I process. But thing one would be definitely my approach to social media. And to clarify, I do social media for clients. My company does that as a service. And we have approaches and strategies, but I also am a big believer if if like you can't execute the strategy the strategy doesn't matter. And so for me, you know, the old world way of posting on social media was like, you got to show up, you know, five days a week and you got to have eight stories a day and you got to be on all 17 platforms and blah, blah. And I just, I can't sustain that in this season and I don't really want to. And I also think it's kind of annoying. And I think that my audience will tune me out and guess what? I'm right. And so you know, I've slowed down my pace of social, particularly on the company's platform. I show up on my personal platform most days, 
but that's because I actually feel excited about it and shifting the way that I was doing social made me excited to show up. And so if I have an, a daily to-do item to post social media for my own platforms, but if I don't feel like doing it, I don't do it because I'm like, the content is not going to be good. It's not going to be interesting. It's not going to be something that people really, people can feel that. Like we think that people can't feel that, but people can feel that. And I am somebody who, you know, analyzes the data and I know when I felt inspired versus when I was posting for the sake of posting and I can see the results. So I don't do that anymore. So that's a big one. And that's something I work a lot with my clients on is we talk about what we call like a primary platform strategy, where we say like, what is the one platform where both you and your ideal clients are that you actually like want to be on? And let's focus our energy there and expand as you have time and capacity or better yet, as you have a team. This is a thing that most people don't recognize is, you know, folks like me who have over 15 different social media accounts associated with their brand, we have teams who help us with this. I'm not posting to 15 freaking platforms a day. And even if it looks like I am, guess what? Like more than half of that work was done by somebody else. So I just really like to caveat with that. Another one that came to mind, speaking of teams, was how I was running my team. Peak growth had between 12 and 15 people that were employed in some capacity by my brand, many of whom were full-time employees and some of whom were contractors. And there was a lot I learned over my leadership skills or lack thereof over the past couple of years and ultimately got to a place where I do not want to be in what I consider to be a really patriarchal relationship with the people who work with me. And I think that the way that we've always done business is you build a company, you hire people, and you're in this top-down dynamic where I'm in charge and I'm policing you and I'm telling you what to do and when to do it and when you can take time off and when you can't. And I never have wanted to be that way. I'm not that type of manager. And as a result, I was almost like too flexible and too giving with people. And it resulted in a situation where I had a lot of employees take advantage of me and like not show up, not do the work properly, um, you know, exploit our leave policies, lie about timesheets, just things that really came back to really break down trust and my ability to employ people. And so I really thought about this a lot this year. And, you know, you know this from my newsletter, Erin, one of the things I'm evaluating is what is this more matriarchal way of doing business? And it's like, I don't want to be in this ladder-based relationship with people. I want to be in a harmonious relationship, which to me is a circle. And so for me, the matriarchal model of employment is, hey, I had this work come in. It seems really aligned with your expertise. Do you want to collaborate on this project with me? Great. Here's the project. Here's the price I can pay for it. Great. These are the deadlines. Okay, we do this project. If it all works out, the client hires us again and we do it again. But I don't want to be, for my own mental health, you know, overseeing, babysitting, policing people on the quality of their work. I just want to work with high caliber collaborators. And I also want to be able to feed myself first these days. And so for me, that's been meant doing away with employee-based models and cultivating new relationships with the people I work with. And it's been so transformational for my mental health because I cannot tell you how many nights of sleep I lost wondering if I could pay people's payroll, whereas now my business model is a lot more profitable. And I also feel a lot more seen and respected in the the relationships and transactions I'm in with other people. Yeah, it's a team effort built on, as you mentioned, mutual respect. Do what the expectation is. And if everyone's you know coming to the table and doing what's expected, then there'll be harmony and everyone will win. Yeah. We're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. Hi, everyone. This is Erin. Have you heard of Creative Live? Creative Live is an incredible online learning platform that offers courses in all kinds of subjects, photography, self-improvement, art, writing, and web design, to name a few. I have personally taken several courses such as a Brand Called You with Debbie Millman, and Workflow, Time Management, and Productivity for Creatives with Lisa Congdon. And I plan to take even more courses in writing, networking, and video production. If you've ever wanted to pursue a creative outlet, I highly recommend taking a look at Creative Live. It's a great way to improve your craft and broaden your knowledge. Girls That Create is part of the Creative Live affiliate program, which means if you click on the link in the show notes and purchase a course, we'll receive a small affiliate commission. Thank you for supporting us. She is brave. She is bold. She is you. And we want to tell your story. Are you ready to share your journey with us on Word of Mom Radio? Go to wordofmomradio.com and register as a guest. We want to tell your story because when you win, 
we all win. Unsilenced Voices has been working diligently in Ghana, Sierra Leone, Rwanda, and the USA to combat domestic violence, sexual abuse, and human trafficking. We currently have over 50 young girls on a wait list in Sierra Leone to go through a vocational training program to get them off the streets and out of harm's way. We have gifted over $33,000 to U.S. survivors and are looking for volunteers and donors to help us continue our cause. Please visit us at www.unsilencedvoices.org. Again, unsilencedvoices.org for more information. Don't let the name fool you. Stadiumbags.com is not just for sports fans. Our clear bags make it easier for you to get into any venue that you go to. And in today's world where we are so concerned about germs, the materials that our bags are made with are strong enough to stand up to the solvents that you can use to clean your bag so you know you come home safely. So check out stadiumbags.com. You'll see why we are the clear choice, because safety, it's in the bag. And we're back with the Girls That Create podcast on Word of Mom Radio. My guest today is Madeline Reeves, founder and CEO of Fearless Foundry. In your newsletter, you've shared the sentiment, the only difference between people who are out there making an impact with their marketing and those who aren't is the people who have moved out of their own way and started. Can you elaborate on this idea and why creators must stop holding themselves back when marketing themselves and their work? Why they need to be brave that things are going to be messy in the beginning? Yeah, I think that we all have to start somewhere and chances are when we start, we're probably going to suck a little bit. And that's part of the process. And I think as we grow, we lose that ability to like play that is so important, especially in the world of marketing. And as kids, it's like we try things on all the time. We test it out. We see if we like it. We see if we don't, you know, an analogy I think of is like my son this past spring, he tried hockey for the first time, roller hockey. And when I say he was terrible, like, I mean, he was falling down every five minutes, but by the end of the season, he was on the winning team in the league. And, and that's the process, right? Like that's the process is we have to be able to fall on our faces and get back up and keep going. And I think that's true for anything in life. But as we, you know, solidify into these adult identities, we don't think that we can fail. And we definitely don't think we can fail publicly. Mm-hmm. If we're going to do it, it's got to be behind closed doors and no one needs to. But I actually think it's really important for us to show up in those ways and continue to learn through them. It's a really important form of modeling. And if it's a really bad mistake, we need to own it publicly. Like I've had moments where I sent out something wrong. I remember it was like, I thought I, thought I was going to die. It was... I sent the wrong list to somebody or the wrong email to something. And I was like, oh my God, the world is going to end. And no, I just sent an email and I apologized to everybody, you know? And so, you know, what I think is so important though, is to recognize the ways in which we impede our ability to even start. And I think this is especially pervasive for women because we want to show up perfect And there is no such thing as perfect. And quite frankly, you know, our attention spans these days with the amount of content out there is so limited that chances are, even if you read my newsletter this morning, you wouldn't remember it this afternoon, unless it was a really, really good one. Maybe you (laughs) would. But, But that's the thing is like, you don't have people expecting you to be perfect. And in fact, usually when you start these things, your audience is people who love you. Like when I started my email newsletter, I had 75 people, probably 50% who were friends. Another 50% who like were sort of business, actually, I'll take that back, 25% who are business people and 25% who are family. (laughs) So it was like, it was a really tight circle. But within the first year of business, I had a thousand people on that newsletter. And so I think you just have to really recognize that like, you know, if you don't start putting it out there, nobody's going to help you spread the word. Nobody's going to resonate. Nobody's going to know what you're even doing. And I think that, you know, clearly, because I've been talking about it so much on this this episode, newsletters are a really beautiful way to nurture a relationship with the community you want to cultivate. It's not something that you'll ever be able to grow if you don't get started with it. And the upside of a newsletter is you actually own it. You own the distribution yes. list versus all the platforms, which are owned by other companies. Exactly. I've had a lot of debate about this, actually, in my ethos this week, because there's a lot of folks in my world 
are looking to start Substack newsletters and and I understand it and I'm even experimenting with it lightly myself, but I still will go to bat till the cows come home and say the most valuable thing that you can own as an entrepreneur is your email list because we saw so much of this in the pandemic where people's content was getting hidden or changed or not accessible through the different platforms and your email list is yours. You know, yes, technically, if you have it housed inside of an email marketing platform, they have access to it, but that list belongs to you and it's very valuable. Another term I've seen in your writing is regenerative business. Can you explain what that means and why businesses need to shift from a grow and scale at all costs mindset to a regenerative approach? Yes, I'm so glad you asked this because this is definitely where I feel like a lot of my work is headed. You know, there's these moments where we rest and reflect and then we have these moments where we're like, okay, now, no, based off of what I know, where are we going next? And so I really had this stirring at the start of this year of like, oh, it finally makes sense to me. And again, I mentioned that my background is in cultural anthropology and, and, you know, I studied a lot in medical anthropology and I've always been um, a systems thinker. And I, I spent a lot of my time in schooling learning about systemic oppression. And so I think a lot about how do things work in terms of operational hierarchies. And when I look at the world of the, of, of business at, as an anthropologist and as somebody who sees the ways our world is crumbling, you know, sees the ways in which our environment is screaming at us, sees the ways in which, you know, workers are so frustrated at the lack of support for them and their families, the lack of fair pay, the lack of access, the lack of, you know, resource or healthcare, whatever the thing is, there's so much lack, despite, you know, having so much as a nation here in America. And what I see as the pervasive and underpinning problem is this way that we create companies and have for decades, if not millennia. And it's really this, you know, approach that is very hierarchical and I would argue is, is you know, the product of a capitalist patriarchy. And that has to do with, again, this notion of a ladder, a top-down system that is extractive in nature, that's core focus is to, from the top, pull out as much as possible. And that could be pulling out from the earth, literally extracting these natural resources that could be pulling out from people. There's a reason they call it human resources, because that's all you are, is you're another resource to that company. How much time can we extract from them? How much productivity can we extract from them? How much work product? How much revenue? How many sales dollars? Extractive. And ultimately, all those resources are being pulled up to the top of that ladder and held by a few, whether that's shareholders, CEOs, boards, profit sharing, whatever, whatever the way the company distributes. But there's always a few mighty at the top. And then, you know, there's the rest of them that chances are, you know, they did a lot more to create those resources, you know, than those people sitting in those boardrooms. So that's, you know, the classic way that we build a company, you know, and there's different models, right? But most founders, like their goal is to get to that point of either having that boardroom or exiting and selling themselves to somebody who already has it, right? So that's not separating yourself from that system. That system doesn't work, in my opinion. There's a reason we're kind of in these last dying gasps, and it'll be interesting to see how many more decades, you know, we have to go with this. But I hope desperately that we'll see the end of my lifetime. And I'm a big proponent of supporting business builders who say we should do this differently. And I'm not going to wait until that system change. I'm going to start it my own way. And I think we have many examples of this. I think like one that comes to mind for a lot of people is Patagonia is a really beautiful example of this. But there are more and more companies who are coming to the table and saying, actually, I don't want to do that model. I want to take care of people and the planet first. And so we used to talk about these as being sustainable companies, but I don't really like that notion because by its very nature, to sustain is just to get by. It's the bare minimum. And so I was like, what is more than sustainable? And the reason I was asking this question was that in 2021, our mantra and our word for the year as a company was sustainable. And at the end of 21, I was like, shit didn't feel sustainable at all. Shit felt like really like we were just barely at the surface, like we were barely getting by. And I was like, oh yeah, because like to sustain, it's not to nourish, it's not to regenerate, it's not to actually grow in a way. It's just having enough to like fill the tank so we can get to where we're headed next. And so this notion of regenerative business is something that I've been really leaning into in the last year. 
And it goes back to that metaphor of like, what does it mean to operate a business that's more matriarchal or more circular in nature? So rather than being extractive, it's harmonious and it is continuing to feed itself. And it was really, you know, this thought process came out of the last, you know, five years, just studying the ways that primarily women, but a lot of my clients are, you know, women, BIPOC, queer folk, you know, folks from, you know, even though I hate this term, more marginalized entrepreneurial experiences come to the table and they think differently because they don't have the same resources at the get-go. They don't have, you know, a venture capital firm that handed them, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. They don't have a bank loan because, you know, the bank was biased and left them out the door. They don't have daddy's money. Like these are people who have had to think about, okay, if it was going to feed itself from day one, how do we do this? And what I saw repeatedly was the circle. And the circle starts with some person, some human who said, I'm going to do a thing and this thing is going to create this. Well, I'm going to pause. So it starts with the human who says, you know, I'm going to do this thing and this thing is going to create this. And that thing is going to give to this person who's probably my client or my customer. And then that thing is going to create a job for this person who, you know, is my contractor, my vendor, my partner, my employee. And then that's going to create wealth which is going to come back to me, which then I can do it all over again. And what I found in these business models as well is that they all were thinking about in that circle, people, planet, profits, you know? And so it's the B Corp mentality is, is often about those three things as well. But it was not about how can I make as much revenue as possible? It's about how can I be as profitable and, and really like responsible with this tool that we have called money. It's not about how can I make it as cheap as fast as possible. It was like, how could I make it in a way that's taking care of the planet and going to allow this company and product to exist in 10 years because I didn't extract every resource possible in the process? And how can I work with my clients, my partners, my vendors, my employees, whoever those people are in a way that they want to show up and continue to do work with me? So that's really at the core of regenerative business. And that's something clearly I'm a little bit passionate about. <laughs> Which is fantastic. And obviously we're all wanting to see change, positive change, but we also right now are in the system and we're also raising kids in the system and it makes me think about folks who have girls who are about to like embark on their careers or about to go into the workforce mm -hmm. what advice would you give to young girls who are about to kind of go into the workforce and are trying to find a company a business something that aligns with who they are and what they want to do because it's a dance because on the one hand you want to support yourself you want to be able to feed yourself and pay rent and car and all these things okay. that you need to take care of but you also don't want to wake up and be like oh my gosh I've been in this track and I'm miserable so three things come to mind one is do your homework you know and so there are so many tools these days that I didn't even have when I was coming out of college Glassdoor is one of my favorite ones to really audit and assess if a company is living up to the things they say on their website. You know, a company can have the prettiest hiring page. They can say these are their values. You can go to Glassdoor and find out how do they treat their employees of color? Do they have pay equity? Are there no women on their board? Like these are questions you should be asking yourself when you look and say, is this an environment where I could see myself and not only see myself in this very moment, but, you know, ultimately a career well plotted is I should be able to go to and grow within this environment for the next three years. So other things I say when, when we're doing our research is, you know, what does women leadership look like? Are there people who could be mentors to you inside of this organization? You know, during the hiring process, think about it as flipping that interview around in the company. Who are some satisfied employees that I could talk to to hear about their experience? Do you have employee resource groups for my, you know, identity? These are all questions we can and should be asking to do our research because we do live in an environment where a company, it should be an exchange. You are just as, as valuable to them as they are to you. And to make sure you're having those conversations, you lean in that way. Another thing that comes to mind that I think is really, really critical is just this notion of having people in your corner when you go into these situations because we're going to think that we know how to handle you know that first hard conversation with a manager we're going to think that we're going to know you know what to do when you find out that you're not getting paid as much as your male counterpart but i think it's really really essential both inside of an organization and outside to have people who have your back and i feel like my career 
I was so lucky to have many, many incredible women mentors that I could go to and be like, oh my gosh, I'm dealing with this situation. I don't know what to do about it. Can can you help give me some guidance and feedback, you know, in the spirit of confidentiality so that I could step forward and handle those things um, with care? And then the third thing that I think is really, really important is to come back to that point about relationships. You know, ultimately, every single moment on your career path can be in a step forward so long as you're leaning into relationships. I've had companies where I've stayed for years. I've had companies I've stayed for months. But each one of them led me to a new opportunity because I still invested in the relationships. There was a company that I left after 10 months because I went through three managers in that time. And, and, you know, if, if I was to look back though, there's nobody at that company who has an ill word to say about me. And they absolutely understood when I moved on because I invested in my relationships, because I had integrity, it's okay to get somewhere and realize you need to go somewhere else. That's not the problem. You just need to comport yourself in a way that shows that you're a quality person. And even if the company wasn't a right fit, that you were really able to carry yourself and build those relationships in a respectful way. This is a big one for me, and I think you would agree. Why is it important to teach girls to ask for what their work is worth? Oh, amen. Well, a woman, I should say. (laughs) This is everything. I was actually having a conversation with a mentee this morning, and I found out something that is a very common thing that happens, which is, you know, first contract at the gate. You don't get the payment details on file. And I just had a really loving but stern kind of moment with her where I said, I don't want to ever see you do this ever again. And I'm passing this message on to you because the first contract I ever put out was a $10,000 agreement and I completed everything and I never got paid. And so owning our worth isn't just about the value of the work we do because that's variable. You know, there's times where my hour breaks down to $50 an hour. There's times where it breaks down to $1,000 an hour and there's everything in between. And so knowing what your worth is work isn't about putting, you know, a number on it per se. It's more about understanding the exchanges you're in. Is this worth my time? Is this worth my expertise? We know what that feels like in our bodies where you're giving to somebody in a way and you're not getting it in return. I think we've all been in those jobs, right? Where you're like, you could not pay me enough money to show up here. Or same with client situations. I've had clients say, I'm like, I don't care how much they'll pay me. I never want to work with these people Mm -hmm. again. So it's not always about the number. But what it is about is about integrities and boundaries and believing that we are worth something. And part of the ways that we put that out in the world is we have to say it to ourselves first. And so doing these basic things, whether it's in an employment situation or a business situation where we own and claim our value up front, one that drives me insane is most women don't negotiate on job offers. I think the data says like 50 to 60% of women do not negotiate. And I've heard sometimes the data is even further, like 70 to 80. So you'll love this, Erin. I used to make it mandatory for my employees to negotiate with me on all offers. Um, Even if it was their first day meeting me, I said, you know, this offer is negotiable and I expect you to come to the table with a counter. And I loved the counters that came out of it. At one point I had an employee step forward and she said, I noticed you don't have a published maternity policy and having a baby is in my future. What does it look like for me to step into the organization and can you create a maternity leave policy that that is a part of my package and a part of the rest of the organization. And I was like, I love this counter. Like I'm done having babies. So I, I just wasn't thinking about it, but I was hiring young women. So that was absolutely something I should have been thinking about. And so I changed our policies and offered that in her counter and she accepted. So that's one side is, you know, having that negotiation with your employer, if that's the relationship. But on the other side, if you're a business builder, if you're creating your own thing, There are certain things that are never up for negotiation, which is, hey, you know, if you would like to work with me, a deposit is required. Hey, if you would like to work with me, a retainer is required with your card or or bank details, and you have to sign this contract that says you're going to pay me, and if you don't, I have the right to send you to collections. And I wish we didn't have to live in that kind of world, but part of owning your value is putting boundaries that say, my time is worth this. You know, what this looks like for me in this season, you know, is I have a calendar link that says, you know, pick my brain and it has a rate attached to it because I don't have any capacity for this season to just be sharing, you know, expertise for free unless it's in moments like this where I'm really actively choosing to be a part of the process. 
you know, but people who just show up in my inbox and want me to go in these back and forth email banners, I don't have time for that. Mm -hmm. And so part of owning my worth looks like, yes, I would be so happy to chat with you about that. Here's a way to book my time and here's how much it'll cost. And so what I just want to offer to every woman is again, you know, that's a process I've built over time. And unfortunately it's come out of a lot of hard work and lessons of being underpaid or not paid. But ultimately we live in this world where we are still economically disadvantaged. For white women, it's what, 70 cents on the dollar for every man. And it gets worse and worse depending on the gradation of your skin, which I fucking hate by the way. And also if we're gonna be the forces to change that, we need to step into the system and charge more. And we need to step in the system and say, actually, you owe me that money. And the last thing I'll say here, and this one's really, really important to me, we as women need to work on doing that with each other. And the reason I say this is because I do a lot of work in and around the space of female entrepreneurship. And I oftentimes have women who think that I should give to them for free because I'm a woman. And I often have people who try to give me things for free because I'm a woman and I don't want to be in that exchange anymore. If you create something of value and I create something of value, we should transact appropriately because if we want to put more money in our pockets so we can change the way this economy works, we have to be paying each other what our work is worth. Absolutely. I can't think of a better way to close out this episode. Madeline Reeves, thank you for being on the Girls That Create podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Erin. It was a pleasure. To all of you tuning in, thank you for joining us on Girls That Create on Word of Mom Radio. Let's all work together to make sure women are paid for what their work is worth. Here's our closing theme song by Smith Sisters and the Sunday Drivers. Till next time, this is Erin Prather Stafford. She is sure. She is sure. She is strong. She is strong. She is true. She is true. She is brave. She is brave. She is bold. She is bold. She is you. She is you. She is you. She is you. She is sure. She is sure. She is strong. She is strong. She is true. She is true. She is brave. She is brave. She is bold. She is bold. She is you. She is you. She is you. She is you. Sure of herself. Yeah, she takes care of biz. Powerful and strong. Yeah, she knows who she is. Has integrity. Woman strong and true. You know her by name. See this woman is you. She is sure. She is sure. She is strong. She is strong. She is true. She is true. She is brave. She is brave. She is bold. She is bold. She is you. She is you. She is you. She is you. She is sure. She is sure. She is strong. She is strong. She is true. She is true. She is brave. She is brave. She is bold. She is bold. She is you. She is you. She is you. She is you. Adds value and hope. Has proved to be brave. See, it's never too late, never time to behave. Reaching for dreams, doesn't matter the age. Believes in herself, unleashed from her cage. She is sure, she is sure, she is strong, she is strong, she is true, she is true. She is brave, she is brave, she is bold, she is bold, she is you, she is you, she is you, she is you, she is sure, she is sure.